Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-hosts and star of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 249 on our network now. As our audience knows, we have a great number of shows that we offer every week, and we just want to thank you and appreciate your support. 40,000-plus subscribers right now, 73 countries. You keep supporting us. We'll keep being able to bring you great content every week like we do here on A Day at the Yard with Wiley and Will. Um, before we get going, I know, Mark, you're going to introduce our great guest today. I'm excited to have a, a catching guru on the show. I get, we get so pitching dominant, I feel out of place sometimes. It's always uh, now we get to see the other side of the battery here. But before we start, Will, you, you had an opportunity to see a well-pitched game the other night. Could you share a little bit with our audience? Um, yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. I got uh, I'm doing the Phillies this week and um, – Got to see Michael Lorenzen's uh, no-hitter and, uh, you know, uh, started out the game. And, you know, uh, he wasn't real sharp, but he continued to work through things. He ended up getting himself into a really good rhythm. He had a really pretty high pitch count after the first three innings because he had some deep counts where he had made some mistakes and the hitters fouled him off and got deep. But he got himself into a really good rhythm. He pounded the strike zone, uh, you know, changed speeds off of uh, his fastball, showing its two-seam and four-seam, down with the sinker, running his four-seamer up. He had a plus change up. Uh, he was able to drop a little little three-quarter slurve in for strikes early in counts, and he had a nice hard slider that he also utilized. And, just kept competing the whole game. Uh, the crowd was pretty electric. You know, it was his second, first start at home. Second start being since being acquired. His first start, he went eight innings down in Miami and pitched really well. And that should be a really nice addition to a team that got to the World Series. Um, you know, to add him, him in with Wheeler and Nola and uh, Suarez and the rest of the rotation, Taiwan Walker that they have going right now. Uh, that was a real good get for them. It was a, it was a fun night for me, um, for a guy who loves pitching, um, to be able to see a no hitter. And I think that's my third one now scouting at the big league level. I saw a day Nomos in Baltimore years ago. And there was one other one that I saw and I can't remember which one. And then this one. So it was fun for sure. Well, thanks, Will. Yeah, that that was great. I, I'm glad you brought it up pre-show, and I think our audience would do would do them great benefit to look up this young man because he, he had a great outing that night. But as you spoke about him behind the scenes, he's got just as good yeah. a makeup, and that's important. Yeah, he's a he's a quality human being. I, I I told somebody one of the most telling things is he did the post game interview, and I stayed at the ballpark for the final out and his teammates sat and waited for him to do the interview to celebrate with him, with his family down on the field. And it was a, you know, in a world we live in where people say, Oh, you know, makeup doesn't matter. You know, chemistry doesn't matter. That team has chemistry. There's a reason it went to the world series last year. And it's a reason they're coming together this year that every guy on the team stayed outside and waited for him to go over and hug him and, drench him and celebrate his no hitter 
So that was pretty neat to watch. That's phenomenal. And, yeah. Uh, Mark, pass it back, pass it over to you. Now we've got a great guest today. Uh, people follow uh, catching on social media. They certainly have heard of them. If they're not social media, media people and they don't live in a cave and they're out there seeing what's great in the catching world, his name pops up all the time. So with that, why don't you introduce our special guest today? Well, Jerry's been a good friend for a long time. We worked together with the Rockies, but uh, Jerry Weinstein's our guest today. Um, you know, I will say that, you know, this is a really important uh, podcast for people to listen because you're going to listen to a man that's done just about everything in coaching. Um, he's reached a lot of people in, in baseball. Uh, as not only has he been a mentor to coaches and managers, uh, players, um, he's made people better, made everybody better. And uh, so bear with me because I got to read his bio and I will tell you it is the longest bio I've ever uh, done here on the on our podcast. Uh, Jerry was educated uh, at UCLA where he played baseball. He graduated uh, with a bachelor's in science, then got a master's degree in physical education. Um, he was a uh, he was the freshman baseball coach for a couple of years at UCLA. He he had years at at uh, several different high schools, um, junior colleges, and uh, and at uh, Sacramento, <clears throat> he had a long uh, twenty three year seasons at Sacramento City College, where he uh, he won eight hundred and thirty one games. Um, state championships twice in a national championship. Uh, he had 213 players drafted to, to Major League Baseball and 28 major leaguers. That's unbelievable. Um, he's also, uh, uh, he uh, helped, he was an assistant coach at, at University of, of Miami, um, went to the College World Series uh, when Ron Frazier was the head coach there. And we all know that the assistant coach did a tremendous amount of work uh, for that program in, in any instance. Um, he was assistant coach at uh, Cal Poly, uh, California State Polytechnic University in, in San Luis Obispo. Um, he managed uh, uh, short rookie league and for the Montreal Expos, for the Chicago Cubs twice. Um, He's been director of player development for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He's been a manager in A and AA for the Rockies. He's been a major league coach for the Rockies. He's, uh, he's, been, uh, uh, he's a special assistant to player development and scouting now for the Rockies. Um, in the summer, he, he doesn't take the summers off ever. He's, uh, coach, he coached at the uh, Cape Cod League for Wareham. Um, he in 2016 and 19 and was going to do it again COVID year and they canceled the league. Um, now we'll move to international baseball. Uh, in 1992, um, he coached for the U.S. Olympic team. 1996, again with the Olympic team, they won the bronze medal. Uh, in 2017, he was manager of Team Israel in the fir in their first World Classic appearance. Um, to qualify, they went three and zero, which was unheard of for a, for a team that didn't have that kind of experience and ended up four, four and two overall, just did a great job with that. I'm sure they're building statues in Israel for Jerry in yeah. 2021. Uh, he's a bench coach for the U S national team in the Olympics. Again, silver medal winner. And in 2005, 
U.S. team coach that won the gold medal at the, I can't pronounce it, Macaba Games. Um, as you can see, vast experience internationally as well as high school and college uh, and professional. Some of his accolades, uh, Sacramento City College Hall of Fame, California Community College Hall of Fame, American Baseball Coaches Association Hall of Fame, 2007, uh, he was with the Rockies when we won the Na we won the National League. 2017, Sacramento uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. 2018, Baseball American Tony Gwynn Lifetime Achievement Award. That's a monster. And 2020, American Baseball College Coaches Association Lefty Gomez Award for contributions to the game locally, nationally, and internationally. That that speaks it all. Um, Jerry's an author, uh, co-author of Baseball Coach's Survival Guide, Practical Techniques and Materials for Building an Effective Program and a Winning Team with Tom Austin. Um, he's the author of the Complete Handbook on, catching, ca on Coaching Catchers, uh, creator of the Ultimate uh, Catchers Pre-Game Drill Routine, which is a digital download, and creator of the... Uh, Catching Skills and Drills uh, uh, digital download, which we will talk about later so to tell you where you can get that. Um, he's written for the for a Twitter page where he does uh, professional analysis of major league plays, uh, which has over 26,000 followers. So ah, now I can take a breath. That was a long bio, uh, but a lot of really cool, interesting stuff to give you a background of our next guest. And this is Jerry Weinstein, somebody that I, I think is one of the top baseball people in the country. Okay, Jerry. I don't want you, you to be speechless. Me out. You wore me out, Coyote. Smoking you mirrors. Never, yeah. Hey, sometimes you, yeah, sometimes you don't even really realize what you got until somebody says it all. You know, I've done these bios and I've had players, I mean, I've had, I've had guests that go, Really? I did that? And I go, yeah, you didn't even know it. Like they were holding a record in the NCAA or something. And I'd tell them they still hold the record. And they go, you got to be kidding me. I didn't know I even had the record. So sometimes I find some cool stuff about my friends. But uh, with you, it was just, it, it's just amazing all the stuff you've done and are still doing, I meant to add. Um, well, it just, it just happened. <laughs> I didn't have a, I didn't have a game plan. There was no boxes that I needed to check, no no, uh, and, and I just happened to be where my feet were, and 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 stuff happened over the course of eighty years. Well, wow. yeah, when you have a passion for something, it takes you to places you never dreamed you'd be. You know, you you. Uh, I have a question here to start us off. You know, you've been dealing with young players your entire career. You know, how do you how do you kind of judge success in coaching? when you deal with so many different types of players at so many different levels? Well, basically, you know, being the best version of themselves, I don't have anything specific that uh, for each player, but it's all about that player doing everything he can to be as good as he can be. And, and again, you know, we're basically just, uh, uh, you know, I tell young coaches that hey, your job is to eliminate your job. And so what I'm trying to do is, uh, and I, I tell the players the best lessons are self-taught. You have to learn how to coach them yourselves. And as a coach instructor, that's what I want to do. I want to empower that player to make good choices for himself so that he can 
he can have success and, and nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, you know, I've heard that. I, it's funny how you said eliminate yourself. I I, uh, I coached for Tony Muser, and you know, he used to he used to say good coaches um, uh, make the person the best they can be. So if you're not there, it's not like they're hung out on a limb. They know what to do. And he said, so as long as you're not making it about yourself, and I know, Jerry, your personality is never making it about yourself. Um, you're a very humble guy, and and you really know how to deal and communicate with players and staff. You know, I, you know, I know Jerry, uh, Dave made a comment about, about you being an expert on catching, which you definitely are, but you know, you have such a background and everything, you know, I've had you speak to the pitchers in, in our development process at the Rockies when I was working there uh, about pitching. Um, so, you know, through this conversation, I think we'll hit on a lot of things, but you know, you have a view on catchers, you know, as far as it's a simple one, but I think it's good for our listeners. Um, what's the responsibility to the pitchers and the team when you're a catcher? Well, my job is to make sure that that pitcher has a good day. And uh, whether he has good stuff, bad stuff or whatever, uh, getting 100 percent out of whatever he's got on a particular day. And and I, I you know, as a catcher. Certainly, I want to lead him, but I want it's a collaborative effort. I want him, I want him part of the process. I don't want him just following my fingers. I want him to to take control of what he was what he's doing, and and whether he has good stuff or bad stuff on a particular day, it's it's getting a hundred percent out of what you've got. And my job is to be a positive leader in in in, in our effort to get the best out of that guy on a particular day, maybe. And, and you know how it is in, in, uh, in Colorado and in Denver, a good day might be uh, six runs in, in, in five innings. That might be a good day. A good day in Denver might be leaving the game with your team ahead, pitching better than the guy in the other dugout. And a lot of that is, uh, is, uh, you know, commitment to the pitch and, and being aggressive through the target and, and, uh, and pitching with confidence and without fear. And, and, you know, I, I'm kind of setting, helping set the tone for that pitcher. And it does just doesn't happen on game day. It's a, it's a process that happens from the last start till the next start, whether it's in the, uh, their catch play or the, or your, your, uh, uh, evaluation of the last game and debriefing and how are we going to change things? And, and then on that particular day, getting, uh, getting that guy in the right frame of mind and just getting him to compete. And uh, again, it, 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 if you have a donkey on the mound, chances are that's not going to happen. Most of the time you have a thoroughbred and when you got a thoroughbred, you got a chance. Yeah. I, you know, we, we worked together with the Rockies and I know a lot of, a lot of time we spent was kind of education, educating the catchers and the pitchers, on on having opinions and and being able to think because you know so many programs throughout the country as kids are coming through in today's world and you know showcases and stuff like that you know guys are kind of told what to do and uh you know it didn't quite it didn't used to be that way but it's been that way for quite a while now that when they get into a professional uh setting they have to be you know taught how to do these things I think one of the things is accepting responsibility for your actions. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we've gotten into 
somewhat of a transfer of blame game, not just in baseball, but kind of in everything. There's a lot of finger pointing going on. And the last time I looked, when we win, we win together. And when we lose, we lose together. And so uh, it's not, uh, it's not, you know, you hear that, oh, my bad. No, <laughs> hey, what you do to yourself, you do to everybody. So everybody's got to take responsibility for their choices. And everybody's got to commit to the to the scoreboard and, and winning the game on that day by doing your part and getting the, the best version of you on a particular day. You know, you, 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 you manage from coach so, for so many years. Um, I know I I've mentioned on other podcasts when I first started coaching and then when I was into it for quite a few years, I was sitting with my bullpen coach and I made the decision. I made the comment. I said, how much better coaches do you think we are now than when we were, when we started and we both started laughing. And I said, a lot of that has to do with uh, what we learned that wasn't useful at all, or was really eyewash or didn't really have value. And you, you, we had to experience it to learn it. And uh, what are some of the things that when you first started coaching that as you've gotten older and more experienced that you, you found that, that seemed to be more important than some things you thought were before. Well, you, you laughed. I cried when I looked back and saw some of the stupid stuff that I did that I thought I, I thought I was so smart. <laughs> the, the more, you know, the less, you know, and, and the more, you know, the more you need to know. I mean, I've done several one eighties on, you know, sometimes early on, we just kind of uh, accept certain things. And then all, as we get older, we, we want to quantify them and make sure that, that what we say is, is right. And I, I mean, I've gone in a lot of different directions in this game. I, I'm, I'm, you know, like we talk in hitting a, uh, you know, hit the, we want to hit line drive. So swing down on the ball and hit the top of the ball. Well, how can you hit the top of the ball and hit a line drive? You got to hit the backside of the ball. But we talked about that. You know, I mean, the game is changing because we have better, we've got video, we've got uh, motion capture. We have better diagnostic tools. We've got better info now. And we continue to get better info, and uh, we come better. We we come be we become better coaches because of of our experiences. It's funny. I when I'm dealing with young guys, uh, my my favorite, you know, especially when we're not engaged and connected. You know, I say, "Hey, look at buddy." I says, "I've been 20." He says, "But you've and I and and I'm 80, and you've never been 80." So it we need to work together on this thing because I've made more mistakes than you'll ever make. And I'm trying to eliminate the mistakes and, and, and help, help you learn because I've made those mistakes and I can, I can expedite the, the uh, development process because we won't have to go through all those stages that, that don't work. Now there isn't any one thing. And, and that's the one big thing that you have to deal with the individual that the, there's no always or nevers in this game and there's no, perfect mechanics it's the right mechanics for that particular player and that's we need to understand that we can't there's not uh there's not one set of there's not one delivery or one tempo or one release point we have to find the one that that works best for that player and often we have to backwards engineer it and see a guy throw a quality pitch and then look at the mechanics on that particular pitch and try and replicate those rather than stick them in some type of compartmentalized uh, norm that doesn't fit their their body type or skill level yeah you know it's funny because you know a lot of people try to make a lot of money by cookie cutter stuff um to me it just doesn't work it doesn't play into what baseball is 
and and how many adjustments have to make. I mean, think about Tommy John and Frank Tanana and Scott McGregor, who all had really good arms when they first started. They had some injuries. They had to adapt, and they were just as good a pitcher, and they had a totally different uh, technique. And then I did a I did a, a clinic one time, and and there was another pitching coach on before me, and he was talking to me. He was trying to sell. It was kind of difficult for me when you don't believe what the guy's saying ahead of you in a clinic. <laughs> but the guy was talking about the same arm slot for everybody, and. Uh, you know, uh, after the, uh, I didn't, I didn't do anything to, to, uh, to the, to tell the crowd that I didn't believe he was right. But after, after the, the, uh, clinic, I got the guy off the side and I said, what, how would there be a Quisenberry if they used just your technique? And that's all I had to say to the guy and, and kind of walked away. You know, there's a lot of different ways of doing a thing. I mean, I had Kevin Apier and Wills talked about Kevin Apier from a scouting standpoint. People thought, oh, this guy will break. He isn't, you know, his mechanics are tell where you never teach anybody that. But, you know, he knew how to time it up and balance it and make pitches. And uh, and I think sometimes we lose that when we get too analytical and uh, we, we analyze too many things. Um, you know, how do you feel about, the use of, of analytics and, you know, you've already kind of mentioned it a little bit about, you know, uh, you know, how people to perform, you know, what they need to pay attention to and practice the right things. Well, what, you know, one of the things I think, and, and it's, and you've heard this saying a lot, it's, funk is good. Uh, one of the things that we, that analytics has really not been able to put its hands on is deception. And those guys that have a little different deliveries, the Hirsch, the uh, Kershaws that have a little bit of a stall in their delivery. I watched uh, Yarborough throw for the uh, uh, Dodgers last night, and he's got a little different arm slot and a little different uh, – he's around the corner. And I, I think that those are tough things to put your finger on and quantify. I, I do believe that, uh, you know, that we can learn things from analytics, certainly uh, uh, especially the high-riding fastball and the value, especially with the – the philosophy today with hitting, getting the ball in the air, and there's more uh, upslope swings and trying to lift balls, and so high fastballs play. But, you know, not 100%, and you just have to find the balance. I mean, the good pitchers uh, can hit all quadrants of the strike zone, depending upon the hitter and the situation. And more than anything else, something we're missing that we really haven't quantified very well is is speed spreads. Hitting is timing, and the more the, the more different speed spreads, especially if if they're uh, 10 miles or so each that we can throw makes creates timing problems. And really as a pitcher, what I'm trying to do is, is create soft contact swings and misses are good. Yeah. But soft contact produces outs. And then that we talk about exit velocity, the pitchers with low exit velocity, uh, that's certainly not a bad thing. And that is a good, a good quantifier. Uh, So yes, uh, I think that, you know, we have to find the balance between the iPad and the eyes. I think there's certain things on the iPad that certainly will help a guy become better. And there's certainly, and especially during the game from pitch to pitch, you better use your eyes because that will probably pay more dividends than anything else. Jerry, go deeper in the speed spreads for our audience. 
Well, uh, especially if the trajectory of your pitches are similar, and it's they, uh, it's it's a it's a theory that was developed by a guy named Perry Husband. It was called effective velocity. He talked about tunneling pitches. So for the first twenty three so feet uh, of ball flight, where the hitters are making decisions on what pitch this is and what speed it's coming at them, if the ball stays in the tunnel, it's hard for them to discern what the pitch is. Now, if you have three or four pitches in that tunnel. With with different speeds, let's say you have a fastball at 95, and you have a let's say cutter slider at 85, and a, and a curveball at let's say 75, and then uh, maybe a, a changeup along that same speed line for left-handers. From a hitter standpoint, if they're not sitting on one particular velocity, they're probably going to be out in front or behind, and that's what we're trying to do as pitchers create speed differentials that makes a hitter a foot late or a foot early. Cause that's the difference between a ball being hit harder or hit less hard. That was perfect. God, Will, you had a question. Yeah. You know, Jerry, I, uh, you know, our pro scouting, we cover organizations and I see um, just re- relating to what you're talking about. Uh, you mentioned soft contact, like soft contact is something I don't think analytic, and a lot of the newer people understand, gets you through a game. You know, Lorenzen threw that no-hitter. He had four strikeouts. They didn't hit the ball very hard off of him all night long because he had a plus changeup, which plays into your speed deferential. He had a curb, a softer a slurve at 82, a slider at 87, fastball 92 to 97 that he added and subtracted all of a sudden, you're changing all those speeds. That's that's pitching, and it doesn't have to always be swing and miss. And you know, we 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 talk on here a lot, Mark and I, and Dave, and a lot of our guests. I see people chasing pitch shape for swing and miss, and I watch bullpens where nobody nobody watches the pitcher throw pitches. They just look at an iPad. To go, that's it. That's the shape we're looking for. Well, it wasn't a stroke. It was it was a ball out of the hand. And it's like, you know, there still has to be, and you said it early on, the player that you're coaching has to be his own best coach and be able to feel all the things that you're trying to get him to do and know when it's right, know when he's on time. And I think that's one of the things – that I see we're losing and I see some kids regressing because they are chasing swing and miss as opposed to soft contact. Well, I think today's game is all about power and velocity. And it was, uh, you know, he, you, anybody talks about a pitcher, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, well, he throws 94, 95 and he touches 97. Well, can he make pitches? Can he get any, ultimately, you know, on the, our scouting reports, you know, uh, can he? We had a can he play uh, question, and can he pitch? Can he get anybody out? And I think that what happened. And I think I, I was talking to to uh, Mark earlier. We we're talking about velocity, and our our trainer Keith Duggar just sent something out. He says that ninety or forty percent of all the pitchers who throw ninety five or above have had or will have Tommy John surgery, and that number is increasing. And so, uh, you know. Availability is a big thing. It doesn't. You don't. You're no good on the disabled list. You know, and there's billions of dollars on the disabled list every year. Most of them are pitchers. 
And and it's because of the velocity. We're coaching them into a dangerous area. The body's not equipped to handle that type of, of uh, A, body mass and arm speed, and, and that little ligament can't stand up. And so now maybe, uh, you know, the, to me, the number one most important tool for a pitcher is his ability to hit a target. Command. And, yep. Yeah. And what happens is, and you watch the bullpens. You watch bullpens in between starts. You watch everybody's tweet. They're all working over the over the rubber on their mechanics. They're all working on looking at the metrics of the ball flight. But but are you making pitches? Because when the game comes, nobody cares what your mechanics look like. It's can you hit, can you get guys out? And overwhelmingly, it's not uh, it's not about stuff. It's about location. It's it's the mislocation that gets you beat. And uh, and we we just you know like the pitchers they'll come off the mound throwing 96, 97 and getting their butt kicked and be satisfied because because their velocity or their movement or whatever it's about competing and getting guys out and that's more about location than anything else. Yeah, no, great. You know, great it's it's funny because uh, that's a good point. You know, you can't do great things if you're on the disabled list, and. You know, people kind of, you know, they'll have all these guys that are tooled up and guys that can throw really hard. But, you know, how how often do they miss starts? How many parts of the seasons do they miss? You can't have any team or personal accomplishments or break records when you're in the, in the trainer's room. And, you know, my big thing was in all the good teams that I had, uh, I was able to be with, um, Keeping the rotation and the pitchers healthy was my job, the training staff's job, the strength coach's job. And I always felt that when we went from start of the season to end and had very few extra starters during that year were the years we had our best seasons. You know, the thing, the thing, like the old saying is, how good is 104 miles an hour on ball four? <laughs> you know, yeah. and but the, the fact of the matter is you can do everything you want. But if a guy's throwing X number of miles an hour, there's so much stress on his body that it's almost like, hey, the guy that's the next wave is going to be a knuckleball camp where you develop knuckleball or low slot guys that don't get hurt because the best ability is availability. And, um, you know, I, I think we need to go back and, and value speed spreads and command. And it's it, it's a quandrum. Do you, do you, and certainly guys that throw – upper level, high nineties, low hundreds, they had their margin for error is greater. They can make, they can, their location can be less fine and, and still have success. But uh, the ability to uh, speed is relative. You know, uh, if sometimes your fastballs, your off-speed pitch, because you've established uh, your ability to throw off-speed pitches for strikes and you can add and subtract and change speeds. And do you go out, do you scout and, get big arms and hope that you develop command and pitchability, or do you get pitchability guys and hope that they get a little bit faster so that they have a little greater margin for error? Or do you have a balance between the two, uh, which I think you probably do. And, and that's from a scouting standpoint, which will, and I know, you know, as well, Coyote, that uh, that's a, that's a quandary, you know, and a lot of times we walk by the guy that, that that's got some funk that can change speeds and can locate because he doesn't throw mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, Jerry, and on, on that point, when I'm evaluating, 
uh, and, and I've started to track this, uh, you know, the old, you know, oh, you know, he throws 98. Well, he throws 90% balls at 98. Um, he throws 60% strikes at 95, and he actually commands 93-94. So I would rather have the 93-94 commanded than the 90% balls at 97-98. You know, in, in, in a pitcher, especially in Colorado, where the ball flies when you make mistakes that are flat up in the middle of the zone all day. You know, it's funny. That's a great, that's a great study, Will. And, uh, you know, I remember when I coached uh, years ago for the Orioles, I had a, a guy from IBM made a program for me. And it was just now, now there's programs that you can, you, you can do this with uh, for anybody. But at that time, there wasn't one. And I, I wanted to know what real strikes the guy was throwing yeah. and how good his command was. So we, I had a, an assistant that would chart the games and put it into the program of, of percentages, you know, within six inches of the, glo- of the, of the target, um, bad misses, um, direct hits. Um, you know, uh, we tracked a lot of things and it painted a good picture of what kind of command the guy really had, you know, and I always thought, uh, you know, we used to get minor league pitchers up that hadn't walked a lot of guys um, in the minor leagues and they got there and they were walking guys in the big leagues. And I'd go back and look at the videos of them pitching in the minor leagues and guys were swinging at the pitches the major league guys wouldn't swing at was part of the deal. So we started to identify that to pay more attention to guys that really did have command in control versus guys that just got it in the general vicinity. No, uh, and the, you know the the one thing about uh, uh, throwing competitive throwing competitive pitches and, and and or pitches that come out of the pitcher's hand looking like a strike instead of right out of the hand it's a ball so the hitter doesn't even have to make a decision when you pressure hitters with strikes and competitive pitches with few non competitive pitches. It, that makes it tough because they got to make a decision on every pitch because every pitch looks like it's going to be a strike. And so that's, and, and finding that velocity and movement profile that provides that decision-making for the hitter that pressures him is, is important and not just the, the high end uh, 98, well, 98, but they're all non-competitive and there's no, and, and the, the hitter, it's a ball right out of your hand. So the hitter doesn't even have to make a decision and yet you're getting your outs at 92, 93, 94 because you're forcing a decision out of the hitter on every pitch. You know, and that's, you know, the, the old school when I coached as a pitching coach back in the 90s and worked for Mark, so many things that, that he taught me, you know, you know when, when you're repeating your delivery and you're slotted up and you're in a good, you're on time, that's tunneling now. You know, because your hand's always on the same spot when your foot lands, and it looks the same to the hitter. It's that curveball that comes out early that the hitter goes, that's a ball, or that's not going to be a strike, versus what you just said, Jerry. Everything looks looks like it's going to be a quality pitch. That's when it becomes tough to hit. Like I hear some young analytic people say that mechanics don't matter. They do. You know, you got to you, – you know – they don't have to be perfect, but you got to be balanced. You got to be on time, and you got to get in yourself into the right rhythm to get your hand at the right spot to make good pitches. 
Right. I think that that's what, what you, you said, something that's really important. It's not a game of perfect. And I think that, that, that the better pitchers, they don't necessarily repeat the exact same mechanics, but they repeat the locations because they'll make adjustments upstream for little tempo mistakes downstream or bad mechanics. But somehow at the point of release, no matter where their arm is or what they're doing, they can they can still locate the ball. They can make those little subtle adjustments from pitch to pitch. Yeah, you know. You know, I always, you know, there's always pitchers that you have a pitch, an area, or whatever that you're really good at. And through repeating it in games, you realize that when I get it there, regardless of anything else, they don't really hit it very well. And, you know, I always wanted to, yeah, I'd like to get Chris Young on the on our show sometime, the general manager of the of the Texas Rangers, because you know how he used to throw eighty six miles an hour, eighty five miles an hour at the top invisible, of the strike zone, invisible fastballs, they were invisible, <laughs> and and guys swung through them. And you know, I'd love to ask him: Did you start when when you? He's a really tall guy. I guess what he's six ten or something. Yeah, six ten. He, uh, I wonder when he discovered that. You know, I'll guarantee you he was pitching in college or in high school or something, and he threw a ball up there. One game, he was consistently throwing it up there, and nobody was hitting it. And he said, man, this might be something. And it became a major strength for him throughout his career. I, I think, gotta, I think you know, it started in college. Mark, you played at Princeton, right? You didn't, you might, yeah, yeah. He played for Scotty Bradley. He played for Tech. Oh, yeah, he played at yeah, he, that's he, yeah, he played for Scotty Bradley at Princeton. And I think that's when he realized. And Scotty was a good catcher who played in the big leagues and knows the game well and knew that, you know, playing off of his 12 6 curveball and the ride that he had on his fastball, that he could work up and down the ladder all day long. And he was one of the best post players in college basketball yeah, too. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, he was a good basketball player as well. And their basketball well, system was based on rhythm and timing, oddly enough. Yeah, you know, I I I don't, you know, I'd love to go back, but I remember seeing him when he first came up to the Texas Rangers and I don't think he used the top of the strike zone at that time. I think they tried to get him back down. Well, you the know? one the one thing, you know, it's kind of like he's he's an outlier in that he's so tall. And so the right. approach angle is so different. It's it's the same as if you compare him and then at the other side of the spectrum is Jenny Finch. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So the ball's coming up. Her, her approach angle is different than his approach angle, and it's so different than anything that hitters normally see that it creates timing problems and, and the, 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 the ball flight, the, the angle coming so downhill or so uphill. And it's so different that that it comes back to that that funk thing again. And so there's that's the nice thing about baseball. We can have little guys, we can have Pedro, and we can have Young, and we can have everybody in between. And guys with the big extension, guys that you know, the Sid Fernandez guys with the low pushy type breeze were that were flat. And it, that's the great thing about baseball that the there's a wide standard deviation of what works. You don't, it's not like the NFL where you got to be, got to bench press the world to play in the NFL or be nine feet tall to play in the, in the NBA. You know, just regular guys can play baseball and be successful. You know, I always say that walk through the hall of fame and look at the different bodies and shapes and deliveries and swings and all the different things. 
and I get that we're always trying to profile and find something that we think's perfect, but there's a lot of imperfect that becomes really, really good. You know, like you said, I would never teach anybody to throw like Clayton Kershaw, you know, but for him, it works. Uh, you wouldn't teach guys to hit like Roberto Clemente, but it worked for him. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, it, 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 you know, watch the game and, and it shows you a lot of things too. Well, I remember as a young coach, uh, there was a scout in our area named Ronnie King and he worked for Pittsburgh and later for the Dodgers, a real sharp guy. And, and he, he says, Hey, you want to know if this guy can pitch? He says, watch the ki- watch the catcher and watch the hitter. If the catcher can't catch it and the hitter can't hit it. You better stay on that guy. That's right. Yeah. That's what the old timers used to tell me when I first started. Jerry, uh, the the pitchers will tell you who can hit and who can't, and the hitters will tell you who can pitch and who can't. No doubt. Just watch, just watch the damn game, and you'll 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 see it. And that's what's disappointing now is I see guys have their heads buried in iPads during the game, and they're not watching what's going on a lot of nights. No, I I couldn't agree with you more. And and you know, we're so tied up into getting the data down in the iPad that we we don't even see the. I remember, it's funny, I remember going to a game and I was watching a catcher at uh, Texas A&M. I want to say his name was Barish. And I'm, I'm really bearing down on the catcher and, and really not paying attention to the game too much. In the end of the game, they stormed the field and and uh, the, the Texas A&M guys were going wild. And I said, what's going on here? He says, oh, threw a no-hitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Hey, Jerry, you, you know, you've been a lifetime learner and and you've had a lot of mentors in your your life. And I know that you started out at UCLA. So I guess John Wooden was there. Uh, did you ever have any connections with him? And wh- who are some of your other mentors? Oh, I'll tell you, this is an interesting story. At least to me, it is. Uh, we used to play on campus at UCLA at a place called Joey Brown Field. And then the basketball team was having success, and so they just, they built Pauley Pavilion right on the field. They took our field away, and we had to go play at the VA. But in the fall, we uh, uh, practiced on the intramural field, and then we'd go in, and our lockers were in Pauley Pavilion. And every in the fall when I came in, the basketball team would be practicing. And uh, Wooden was a great baseball fan, too. He loved baseball, came out to all our home games. And he matter of fact, he coached at Indiana State, so – one day I I I I I, I up enough nerve to go up to his office and and uh, and I asked the secretary if I could talk to Coach Wooden. She she, she called him and said, "Yeah," and, and he knew who I was and I was just a backup guy at UCLA. And I said, "Coach," I said, "When we come in, I see you guys are practicing. Would you mind if I watch practice?" He says, "No, no, come in anytime you want." So I'd almost cheat my practice and come in early so I could watch the basketball practice. Wow. And, and uh, it was really, it was really special to be able to watch. His practices were short; they were organized; uh, they were really up tempo. That's the thing that impressed me the most. That he didn't do conditioning; practice was the conditioning. And and I've taken a lot of that from him. The other guy that really helped me a lot was a guy named Ken Revisa, who uh, from yeah. yeah, mental game stuff, and he he just really, really was impactful for me in terms of uh, learning how to control the controllables and what's important 
And because uh, I used to joke with him, I said, oh, Ken, I said, this game is 95% physical and 5% mental. He says, yeah, Weinstein, except that 5% mental controls the 95% physical. And it really, it really does. <laughs> and, that's the truth. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then there was a guy, and I'm rereading it right now. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis by a guy named Tim Gawley. <clears throat> and for your listeners who are into this type of stuff, and it's not just for baseball, it, it's everything in your life. It's a fabulous book, Inner Game of Tennis by Tim Gawley. Wow. Great. You know, yeah. Jerry, I uh, Ken Ken passed away a couple years ago, and you know the outpouring on Twitter that I saw, and I only met him once, but uh, what a what, you know what a great mind, and how many people he helped over the years was incredible, and you know for me, John Wooden, I have every one of his DVDs and tapes. Uh, I used to make my son watch and make kids watch that I would work with and stuff. And what a, uh, you know, he truly cared about his players and that, and he made them all better. And every one of them in the, in the afterlife all respect him for making them who they were. So what an impact. Well, he was such a process oriented coach. It wasn't about, it wasn't about the outcome. It was all about the process. You put the hay in the barn, stack it right, and you got a chance to have a good outcome. He never talked about winning or anything. Didn't scout his opponents. Didn't scout, and it frustrated his assistants because they they did a lot of scouting, and and he gave them like ten minutes before the game to talk. He says, "Hey, they'll adjust to us. We don't need to adjust to them." Of course, when you have when you have five uh, McDonald's All Americans on your team, and you got yeah. uh, and you got Cream, and you got Bill Walton, and guys like that. It's it, they will have to adjust to you. You know, you know, the other thing and we talk about it a lot is, uh, you know, Mark's John Scalinas, the 17 inch stuff. And I remember reading uh, that game in the Astrodome when the game was over and they came in to clean the UCLA locker room. The, the, the janitors could not believe how clean it was because he was so just doing the right thing. You know, little things do matter when you're polite, when you, when, when you don't leave a mess and you respect others and all the things, all the tenets that he taught his players that carry you so far in life were, were, were unbelievable. When, when I read that, I, I just go, Oh my gosh. You know, when I coached my son's travel ball team, I always made sure that we cleaned the, we cleaned our dugout afterwards. Sometimes you go in these dugouts and, and these young kids, they think it's a trash can, an open trash can. No, it's not. You know, there's trash cans in there. Put your stuff in the trash. Take care of your stuff. You know, well, Wooden, Wooden's big thing was uh, everything's important. There are no little things. That's right. And he was a real detail-oriented guy, and, and uh, he didn't care what your star status was. There was no star status. It was just, you know, he was really consistent. He had his rules and he stuck by him and, and, you know, no high highs and no low lows. He was in that middle ground and very unemotional and very businesslike and very, very, very organized. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you told that story about the Astrodome because that was the game I believe they lost after yeah. having a monster yeah. win streak. Like a, a hundred Elvin, wins. Yeah. That was the Elvin Hayes took Elvin it on Hayes himself and just kind of dominated. Um, Unbelievable game. Yeah, I watched that thing on television. That yeah. was a big 
uh, it was epic, you know. Oh, but yeah. You think about it. They, they lost after winning all those games in a row and uh, with a great team. And and they still he still had them clean the locker room. Yeah, yeah. No, there was no pouting, no. you know. Jerry, you you you're probably one of the very few coaches that's ever coached successfully and changed lives from players from high school to college, professionally, internationally. Um, you know, what are some of the things you learned along the way with your interactions with all these different players? Well, uh, I guess the fact that I was not a very good player, I, I really got, and still do, get a lot more satisfaction out of the success of, of others than, than you know, wins and losses or anything that I do. And, and I really, really enjoy seeing people have success. And, 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 and even if I've had a very small piece in the, in the, in the process, but uh, I think you, for me that, that coaching and, and, and being a piece of the success uh, puzzle for others is far more gratifying than anything I could do for myself as a player. You know, I remember when you were, we were in the, uh, uh, in the complex there in Scottsdale and you were putting together the Israeli team and you were making phone calls to all these guys, guys that had, had connections with Israel that were allowed through the rules to play and, and how you were trying to get them to play. I mean, that was, you got any interesting stories about that? Uh, it almost got down to the point because the, the WBC rules are a lot different in terms of eligibility than the Olympics. The Olympics, you've got to be a citizen. And it was, it, it was the running joke was for me was, well, if you like locks and bagels, you're okay. You could play. <laughs> but we did, we did have one funny, this was a funny, and it involved one of our players. I had a guy named Alex Jacobs, who was a scout for uh, Houston at the time. And he helped put the team together. He was really an important guy and he was a pit bull. And so he was going through every minor league roster and every name that was, it was uh, non nondescript in terms of, well, he's definitely Jewish or he's definitely not Jewish. He'd go through all the names and he calls me, he says, Hey, he says, uh, he says, you got a guy named Scotty Bertram that's playing in Asheville. He's a, we were, we were desperate to find a shortstop. We didn't have one. And, and I said, yeah, I don't know him. He says, is he Jewish? I says, I don't know. He says, well, look at, he says, I looked at his mother's Facebook page and he's definitely Jewish. And so I said, well, I said, I'll check. And so I called uh, Joe Nikolic and I said, Joe, I said, this is going to be a crazy one for you. Would you ask Scotty Bertram if he's Jewish or not? And, and I said for this WBC thing. And so, uh, Joe, hey, Bertram, are you Jewish? Well, my mom is. And so he became our shortstop, and he was an integral part of us having success, especially in uh, Korea and, and, and Japan because it was a turf field. And so uh, and he was a tremendous ball catcher, and, and he could bunt. And, and he, he was really integral in the because he, he picked up everything and, and got down a couple really big bunts that helped us win games. And so and that was – that was one of that, that was one of our stories, and as far as player procurement, I thought was kind of interesting. That's a, that's a good story. Yeah, you know, you know, this is for the benefit of some of our listeners. We we ask most of our guests similar questions, and 
This one is, you know, young players are starting out in competitive baseball. Uh, they face a lot of pressures to succeed. You know, their parents have their ideas. The coaches have theirs. Teammates have theirs. Sometimes organizations have theirs. What, what do you feel a player should focus on during his path to succeed? Well, for me, it's uh, they have to. The, the people that are successful, like all, all of us on this on this podcast, are passionate about what we do, and and anything that we do, uh, we we need to make sure that we we don't do anything to erode their passion for the game and develop the passion for the game. And and uh, I, I think that uh, uh, one of the things is uh, playing the game almost with reckless abandon. I tell coaches, I said, your job is is to coach caution out of the player, not into the player. And I think that quite often we, we get somewhat negative. Hey, don't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do that. Instead of, hey, do whatever you want to do. Let's find out if it's going to work or not. And 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 let's, let's find a way to make it light and have fun and relationships, and especially with young kids, because we want them there because they want to be there, not because as parents we want them there. Uh, and so I think that that's the, the, the ultimate challenge is to keep making it fun and, uh, and, and keep adding layers on to their passion for whatever it is they're doing, whether it's chess or tennis or pickleball or you name it, whatever they're doing, uh, that they, they're doing what they like to do and, and that they're enjoying what they're, they're doing. You know, Jerry, you, and we're going to, uh, Dave will, uh, give them the information they need to to get to to your book and maybe some of your downloads. But um, you know, a lot of people have expertise and stuff, but they they and they want to write a book or they they want to uh, do a tape or whatever. You know, uh, seeing how you've been through the process uh, several times, you know, what are some what's some of your advice on somebody that would like to do that? Uh, don't expect to make any money. Number one, <laughs> that's if you're writing the book because you want to make money or whatever, don't do that because it, it, the time spent and the energy spent and the effort is far more than anything you'll ever make. Do it because uh, it's more of an altruistic thing. I want to get my information out there to help someone else become better and avoid some of the pitfalls that, that, that I fell into. Uh, I think that that's number one. And, uh, and then I would say as much as possible, if you can self-publish your stuff, do it rather than going through uh, publishing, you know, those types of things, because, you know, it's it's your blood and their guts. <laughs> they you don't they, they make the money and, and you don't. So if you can do that yourself somehow, uh, I think that would be the, the best way to do it. Yeah, I, I did a I did a. Uh... Uh, actually, a a tape um, years and years ago uh, on pitching, and uh, I think the biggest mistake I made. Well, first of all, the people that I was doing it with, um, you know, they they were really good intentioned, but I think they didn't have enough uh, uh, marketing background, and they they didn't have enough editing background to make it as good as it could be. And it was probably trying to put too much information into one, one tape, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's a mistake. I think the one thing in today's environment with social media is so accessible that you can get your, you can get your stuff out there. You can just do it yourself and put it on Facebook or 
or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or whatever. And, you know, if, I think that you can self-promote your, your stuff. And, and, uh, and uh, I think that today's in today's publishing uh, game, that that's probably the best way to go personally. Mark, I think we want to resurrect that pitching video. We'll have to get, get it off of beta and get it onto something digital. Yeah, it, it was a long time ago. Yeah, I've had people talk about that, but I've never. Uh, no, there's some good stuff. I got I got some good players on there that that pitch for me that uh, show different things. I had Buddy Black doing the uh, Job exercises. I had. Uh, uh, analyzing Jose Mesa's delivery, stuff like that. It was it was back when those Cleveland heydays. Jerry, I've got a catching question for you, a technical question. It's I see it college down to grassroots. Obviously, we see it in the pro game. Where does the one knee catching and where does the – and I see guys working from the ground up with the glove as opposed to giving that target nowadays. Can you talk to that? Um, because, you know, we talk on the show a lot – major league guys are major league guys are going to do things a certain way, but these young kids have to build up to those certain things. Can you, can you talk to the, I guess it's widespread now, but talk to those two factors in catching. You bet. I know I'm, I was waiting for that topic to come up. Um, you know, I think one of the, and let's start with the younger kids. One of the pro, young kids, physically, they're not strong. They don't have good balance. And then, then we're giving these eight and nine-year-olds this big glove that they can barely get off the ground. I, I think starting young kids on a knee, and this is going to be, uh, this is going to be an outlier uh, opinion. And I think you, you have to experience it and try it. Starting young kids on one knee and giving them a chance to be in a relaxed, balanced position without having to work on balance from a two-point stance is a good way to start the receiving process. From on the on the on from the big league level on down, the reason there are a couple reasons why uh, guys are on a knee, and it, and it's amazing because baseball is so traditional and so slow to change. Yet almost overnight, everybody's catching on a knee, and a lot of them are catching on a knee a hundred percent of the time. They never get into a traditional stance, and we have to ask ourselves why. Well, one of the reasons is data. And what we're finding, the most important piece of data for a catcher is his ability to receive. It affects the game, the wins and losses more than anything else because your catcher is going to touch the ball X number of times in a game. Over 5,000 pitches during a season are what I call straws, And that's a pitch that could go either way depending upon how you catch it. And the better guys create run value of 20 to 30 runs a season based on their ability to catch the ball effectively over the guy, the average guy. That translates into three to four wins, big league wins, just on receiving. The throwing piece and the blocking piece, they're about five or six runs max, maybe even less. So overwhelmingly, the receiving piece is really important. As a matter of fact, when you look at Run saved defensively, the, the position that saves more runs on the field than any other is the catcher. That's why you got to have a guy that's an athlete that can catch the ball effectively. Now, what we see is that each pitch that they convert from a ball or a straw ball to a strike has a run value. 
and with 5,000 of them, and the run value depends upon the count and the situation. It could be as much as 0.59 runs on a 3-2 pitch that's a ball or a strike. That turns, and over the course of a season, that adds up to a lot of runs. Those runs on the macro side create wins. So what's happening, the other thing is that the one-knee stance is is much less stressful. The catcher can be a lot more relaxed with one knee, especially when they load their glove down before the pitch is thrown so that now they're down working under the ball because the highest percentage of gettable pitches is down in the zone. 52-plus percent of the pitches are down in the zone. So working down and up through the ball, it's a lot easier when your glove starts from a loaded position on the ground, plus less stress on the body, uh, less stress on foul tips because you're more relaxed, more quickness because when you're relaxed, you can move quicker uh, and smoother. And so that's why uh, the one knee stance is so prevalent in today's game from young young players right on up through most big leaguers. Now, some there are some hybrid guys that they, they get into the stance that's best for the, the priority of the situation. If the priority is the pitch, maybe I'm in a one-knee stance. If the priority is of the block, maybe I'm more in a two-point stance. If the priority is is throwing, maybe I'm in a different stance. I think where the greatest amount of criticism comes is on balls in the dirt. 90% of the balls in the dirt are within the frame of your body. So being on a knee gets you down to the ground faster and puts you in a better position to block. The lateral piece is a difficult one depending upon which knee, which foot is up. And, but for the, for, for the most part, those lateral pitches are difficult to block whether you're in a two-point stance or in a one-knee stance. And the issue is that every time a guy's in a one-knee stance and a ball to his right or his left gets by him, the uh, commentator says, well, you know, that's the problem with a one-knee stance. If he were in a two-point stance or a traditional stance, he would have blocked it. And from my experience, chances are they wouldn't have blocked it in most cases. And some are, you just have to find what works best for each individual. And it gets back to what we talked about before, dealing with the individual differences of the player and accommodating what works best for the players. And then loading up their toolkit with options. You know, just because you catch out of a, a traditional stance doesn't mean you can't be working a little bit out of a one-knee stance to see if that might be better for you. I love that. Will, you had a question. Yeah, just, just a question, Jerry. And, and um, if we go to an automated strike zone, will the stride ball um, not be a factor anymore in, in framing and stealing pitches or receiving? Um, is there any data on that? Um, and, the one, you know, the one thing I will say is uh, the, the one knee guy's releases are not as quick as the guys who were on two feet, you know, that I that just anecdotally from a scouting standpoint. I see yeah. a lot of guys, you know, especially, especially the less athletic guys, you know, Rayo Muto, guys like that can still get up and, and go. But I, I will say – Real Muto has let some balls get past him that I've been surprised since he's gone to more one knee. He's got, well, look, there's kind of a few pieces to that question. Let's go Real Muto. I think that one of the things is he's gotten to the point where he feels like his hands are so good that he can pick a lot of pitches. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that I'm not 
really in favor of picking balls in the dirt unless the runner's running and there's no chance of them going 180 feet. Yeah, I think that you you block first, and I think that we have to start thinking more block first, depending upon the situation. If a guy's throwing a, a put away breaking ball that's a nasty split or cutter slider that's a ball strike pitch that's probably going to be in the dirt, I've got to start thinking block a little bit earlier in the process. But the other pieces that you asked about, the data that I have and uh, the throwing piece, uh, I think that if you look that – and let's just say that it's a right-hand pitcher, right-hand hitter, and we're throwing a, a breaking ball on the outer half of the plate that's down. The guy in the traditional stance is going to catch that pitch with his knee, on, his right knee on the ground and then come up and throw. The guy on right knee is going to come out of that knee down stance and catch it in more of a traditional position with both knees off the ground. And the data I have on throwing that some guys, a high percentage – are better coming out of a knee down stance throwing than they are from an upright stance. And I think that the, uh, a lot of the data will support that. Um, the, the other thing is, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you on, just, the automa- on the automated, the automated strikes on that. Yeah. I think that a couple things, if you do not catch the ball cleanly, you're going to have a tough time making transfers if the ball's rattling around in your glove. So if you're not a good eye-hand coordination, catch the ball in the sweet spot of the glove, it's going to affect your throwing. That's number one. Number two, I think that when you're sloppy behind the plate and catch the ball poorly, I think it's going to affect the pitcher's mindset because uh, his pitch doesn't look as good, doesn't sound as good, the quality. And so from a you know, a confidence standpoint, I think that's going to be a problem. But I, I don't – I think the first thing that's going to happen – and what scares me is that and, – and I like our commissioner. I like what he's done with the game. But the ABS, they put a lot of time and study and money into the ABS, and I'm afraid they'll go straight to the, the, the full ABS. But I think the one that works the best for me is the challenge system. I like the challenge system. Yeah, I like the challenge much better than the uh... – the other one and, and 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 they some of the people I talk to try to say it never misses a pitch and I kind of disagree but um you know they say they use the hawkeye which okay on a tennis court when there's a defined line and a ball hitting a line is much different than an imaginary strike zone to me no doubt I think right now the the ABS that's being used in AAA is too small yeah I don't think the strike zone's big enough. And I, I'm for a bigger strike zone because it gets guys swinging the bat. And when you get guys have to go up there and swing the bat, the quality of the game is, is, is better. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, that we will see some form of the ABS in the future. Jerry, I had, I had 25 walks in Lehigh Valley two weeks ago one night. Well, you know, the, <laughs> other, thing, the other thing I think – uh, Will that would be beneficial is we get the best ball strike callers behind the plate every night. Yeah, exactly. That that, exactly. that that every crew doesn't have four good ball strike guys. And yeah. to me, you should have right. a five man crew. You get the and and I hate to say it because I'm old, but the young guys are better for the most part behind the plate. Get get two of them. Let them do the balls and strikes. The night that they're not behind the plate, they're in the booth doing the replay, and then they're then with with when with uh, 
with Chris O'Dowd's or Dan and Dan's win reality stuff. They can prepare by by doing virtual reality, seeing the pitcher that's good pitcher or pitchers that are going to throw the next night, and they'll be better prepared and and uh, let the. It's like the NFL. I mean, there there are referees, there are back judges, there are line judges. Uh, it's a know, good call. I never even thought of that. That's yeah, a real good call. I think I think get the get the best strike ballers back there every night. Yeah. Well, I I always liked you know the one thing even before they had video replay for the umpires, uh, I really liked when the umpires got together and they tried to get the decision right. Uh, you know, I was I coached so long ago that I know that. No question. No, there were times when umpires wouldn't even question another umpire, um, regardless if it was flagrant or not. Um, and then it went to where they started trying to get the decision right, regardless of whether it overturned one of their buddies' calls. And of course, now they've got the video, so that makes it much easier. Well, they're the they're the best guys in the world. There's no doubt. And you see, with the instant replays, they're getting most of them right. And the same thing behind the plate. And you know, I think that the, the traditionalists, when they see catchers move the ball the way they're moving the ball, that they, that that it irritates them because it used to be if you move the ball, the umpire had to, hey, that's a ball. You move it, it's a ball. And now yeah, they're trying. They're trying yeah, they're they're trying to get it right, and they're they're working together with the catchers, and they want to get it right. And uh, and there's less concern about what the player does and more about what the ball does. But, you know, you know, that's a funny thing is, is that, you know, we umpires are there to help control the game. And I don't see anything wrong with telling a catcher, you move the glove. It could cost you because, you know, it's so f- stupid. Guys pull balls to the middle of the plate from off the plate. And I'm going, are you that's embarrassing? You know, like umpire control that. It's just like when they put the time clock in there. And we've gone over this before that back in my day, if the guy didn't get in the box, they, they, they said, throw the ball. I'd throw it. They call it a strike. You know, like they controlled it. They didn't need, they didn't need a clock. And, you know, it's like, we're going to keep, I don't know whether somebody's selling them the fact that it's too many responsibilities for an umpire. So we'll just take it out of their hands. But it, it was pretty good for a lot of years. Yeah, I think you got to find the sweet spot. Um, you, you know, the the Eric Greggs and guys like that that had their own personal strike zones, and 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 I think now they're just trying to get it. Like you said, they're they're trying to get it right, regardless of the other stuff that they really have no control over how the guy catches it or whatever. You're just trying to if it's a strike, I need to call it a strike. If it's a ball, I need to call it a ball. And then they then they have a buffer zone. They've got uh, balls with inside and outside the strike zone that they get credit for. Uh, whether they call it a ball or a strike, they give them some some leeway there, and so I think that's I think that's okay too. But it's just being, you know, as a hitter, you just need to know every night what the strike zone is going to be, uh, and and that there's one zone, and basically it's the rule book zone. Absolutely, well, Mark. Well, we've kept Jerry for well over an hour, and we appreciate all his time. And do you guys have any last questions you wanted to throw at him? I think I. I could have many more, but I think I think we've 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 kept Jerry long enough, and we've learned an awful lot today. Oh, a ton, Jerry. Where can our audience find your information, and how can they support you and what you're doing to help really educate them, like we're doing? Well, the the thing I'm most active on is Twitter, and 
I put some on there every day, and it's uh, capital JW, lowercase O-N, and capital catching, JW on catching and uh, on Twitter. And yeah, my anything that I have is on there. And, and there's the, uh, the book, and it's on weinsteinbaseball.com, which is on the Twitter account. So if they're interested – great if not not a problem and there's a there's an ebook as well as uh as a, the hardcover yeah i'll i'll attest to that that it's golden too all, all it's so impactful so many people uh, i was talking to my son uh who works for dan and chris at, at, at win reality jerry and i told him you are a guest taker. Oh, Jerry, I've been following him since college. You know, <laughs> you know, he played yeah, for. I'm college. not a coach. Hey, oh, you're the Twitter guy. I said, yeah, no, you baseball know. coach. No, you're the Twitter guy. I, I read <laughs> your stuff. Okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, no, you know, well, he played for Tom Griffin, who I, I know you're friends with. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, you know, Tom would always suggest guys for those kids to follow. And, uh, just because of your baseball knowledge, it was golden, and he learned a lot. And he was excited. Uh, he listened to our podcast, so cool. Yeah, that's- hey, well, but Jerry does a lot of speaking too. So any of our listeners, um, it would be great if uh, if you were able to follow him and see where he's speaking any given time because it's worth every bit. Jerry, you do the Ketchikon every year, too. I, right? I love uh, That's the yeah. best catching clinic of all time. And, you know, the nice thing about the catcher's community, uh, it's collaborative and everybody gets along. It's not like the hitting stuff where everybody's yelling at one another and it's and, and sharing information. Whether, and there are big league catching coaches there and coordinators. And, and it's, a, it's a small clinic and everybody – all every night, everybody gets together at the hotel and talks. It's really that's a, probably the best clinic I do. Yeah, yeah. We'll challenge our audience to support Jerry on his endeavors with writing and follow him on Twitter. Make sure you visit his website, and we want to try to pump that book up. We challenge our audience to make that on the Amazon list. So let's get it going there. And then uh, Catchcom is something we talked about before the show too. Tom Griffin's there. Zan Barksdale is the one that. Puts that on? Is that right, right. Jerry? It's in, it's in Nashville. Zan is, and Zan's really has good content on his his side too. He's really a good guy and a good a catch a promoter of catching information. And that clinic is in Nashville in early December every year. And it's if you're a catching person, it's really worthwhile. We get a lot of uh, dads who bring their young sons, and it's amazing. Those eleven and twelve and thirteen year olds sit there for. 12 hours a day taking notes and asking good questions. It's really, wow. really awesome. neat. Yep. Tan- Tanner and I will be there this year. We, we go to Tom's, uh, we go visit with Tom in October, Griffin, and then we'll be heading to Nashville later on. So we'll get a chance to see and meet you in person. You bet, Dave. Look forward to it. Good deal. Well, guys, Mark and Will, as usual, great show. You guys always bring on great baseball people, but you always, the layer that I love about your show is there's always a wonderful personal relationship between you and the guests, and that comes out, makes the show even better. Uh, to our audience, 40,000-plus subscribers, keep following us. Keep download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball sometimes. So like, give us a give us a five-star on this show and write a nice comment for Mark and Will and Jerry. And then, audience, again, let's support Jerry on his sites and, and, and get his books and start spreading the knowledge about catching. Who would have thought catching would have been the kumbaya position with pitching and hitting, fighting each other all the time? But um, 
Audience, again, thanks. We will support you. We have our stuff moving forward starting next week with our, our shop. Hopefully, we'll be open. Our advertisers will be up, and we will keep it ad-free, but our advertisers will help put money back in your pockets and put some money back in our podcast host's pockets. So, guys, thanks so much. Mark and Will, thanks for a great show. Jerry, thanks for being a great guest today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, guys. Great job, Jerry. Thanks, oh, Jerry. Great. Thanks so much. Let's stay in touch. Episode 249, Real Voice of the Game Productions, A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will in the books. Thanks again, guys.